and good evening from Charlotte. We are live with you on this Wednesday night. What a very busy day in the science and weather community here on May the 27th, 2020. We have a great show for you. Uh, it wasn't exactly the celebration that we were hoping for, as you probably know by now. SpaceX Demo 2's launch from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida scrubbed today due to weather, so we were going to talk a lot about the weather. We also had a surprise appearance by a tropical storm named Bertha, who suddenly came together off the coast of South Carolina, came ashore, and then brought flooding rains here to Charlotte. So we'll have uh, Chief Meteorologist from WCNC, Brad Penovich, on to talk about that, and also geek out with us about space. And we're also joined by Tony Rice, our go-to friend of the show and space expert, and we're so happy that uh, you all are here uh, let's get right on into it. If you're joining us live tonight on Facebook, on Twitch, on YouTube, or Periscope, you can comment along with our show. If you're listening to the audio podcast or you're happy to catch this replay on the new Looping Carolina WeatherNet, hello to you as well, too. Tony, uh, let's just start with the elephant in the room. Not the day we were necessarily hoping for. But not the day that came unexpectedly, either. Um, if you ever had the opportunity to go down and see a launch, if you haven't, do. You know, once all this current situation is over with and we're back to whatever normal looks like, you get the opportunity to go down to Florida and see a launch, do it. It's just an incredible situation. We were talking about that a little bit before we uh, uh, we started here, and it just it doesn't capture what it's like uh, if you're watching it on TV or on YouTube or whatever, what the experience is like down there. So that out of the way. Uh, if you have ever been down there, you know that Florida weather is Florida weather, and we kind of expect these things to happen. I think there's one or two other places on the planet where there is more lightning activity. So uh, we, we scrubbed today because of weather, but we scrubbed today mostly because of the potential of lightning. And that's something that we learned back during Apollo 12, even, uh, when the Saturn V was hit by lightning on a spin and basically rebooted the rocket. Uh, just, you know, several hundred feet above the pad. Uh, we learned more about that through subsequent launches. So there's some very specific weather launch criteria. And we can get into that. But basically what happened today is we violated one, maybe more, and definitely know of one uh, of those launch weather criteria that uh, has to be met before we're going to go fly. I just did. I just pulled the Scotty. I forgot to unmute myself. We're certainly going to get into some of that uh, weather criteria, um, and we're going to break it all down because we got some really interesting information. Uh, I don't want to get too far into the program for anyone who doesn't know, Tony. Let me have you explain it. What is the significance of this mission? So this is the first time in basically nine years that we attempted to launch astronauts from U.S. soil. Uh, so at the end of basically construction of the International Space Station, we retired the space shuttle. Um, space shuttle, the best way to, to compare it, and the reason that we didn't continue flying the space shuttle to take astronauts back and forth, astronauts stay about six months on board station before they come on back home. So we're continually ro uh, rotating people through there. Uh, the best way to compare it is you, you wouldn't take uh, a tractor trailer to go get groceries. And that's about the volume of space that was in the back of the uh, the shuttle's payload bay. Uh, if you're just taking supplies, well, we can send an un uncrewed mission up there. Uh, SpaceX has been doing that for a while. We've got some other ways of getting cargo up there. But to take people back and forth, we've been buying seats on the Soyuz. 
launching them from Baikonur Cosmodrome out in Russia, uh, actually in Kazakhstan. Uh, but we really wanted to get that capability back onto U.S. soil. So several years ago, NASA, as a part of the commercial program that includes cargo as well, uh, we want to hand over basically low Earth orbit to com commercial agencies. Uh, SpaceX is one of them. Boeing's also working on getting some capability there. So it was really important to get this capability back on U.S. soil. Uh, and Administrator Bredenstein talked about it today. One of the, the main reasons we want to do that is we have one American up there right now. We want to have more. The more Americans we have up there, the more they can focus on specifically U.S. science. So the uh, the, the Dragon capsule uh, that we attempted to launch today, we're going to give it another shot on Saturday, whether willing, uh, has the capability of taking four up as once. At once. That's even a, uh, a better option than using the Soyuz because the Soyuz can only take up three. And the, those are at most going to be two Americans and it's generally only one. The Soyuz as well, and I don't know if others feel this way, but when I watch it, I feel like it's something straight out of a James Bond Soviet Union error technology. Uh, and that is like the complete opposite of what SpaceX has developed here because they only not only did hopefully a very efficient rocket based on what we've seen with the uncrewed missions, but also, and Brad, you were touching on this before the show, there's a little bit of style that they incorporated into not only the spacecraft, but also the suits we're seeing here. Yeah, they're very interesting. Um, I love the helmets. Um, the rest of it, I don't know. The, it, it almost looks like some kind of weird like leisure suit, and then they've got like shrimping boots on or something. <laughs> <laughs> Those were actually designed by uh, a Hollywood costume designer. Elon Musk went out and specifically got one there of you the go. designers <laughs> that m was working on Marvel films and said, you go sketch this up something. You tell us what these are supposed to look like. Then they handed it over to the geeks who actually made <laughs> it work and made it functional so it can protect the astronauts when it needs to, to protect them. But yeah, yeah the, the helmets are cool. Those cool helmets, I love. Them. They do look pretty cool, don't they? I will say one thing about the Soyuz, though. If you've ever seen pictures of the outside of the space station, you can pick those Russian elements out really, really easy. They're bulbous. And the reason they're bulbous is because a sphere is a very strong thing and, and can hold pressure really well. But the thing about Soyuz and the thing about those older rockets and those older capsules is the the thing that you really want to have underneath of you and around you when you're in space is something that is well tested. And those rockets have been around a long, long time and are, are very well worn and have had the, the bugs worked out of them. Uh, we had a, an incident a couple of years ago where uh, one of the solid rocket motors you know, that come off during ascent uh, bumped into the capsule and they ended up having to uh, going into an abort mode that they hadn't done in, and I don't know for how long, but previous to that, we really hadn't had any incidents with the Soyuz. Uh, the, the Soyuz is, is old fashioned and it doesn't look that great. It certainly isn't as sexy as, as what uh, SpaceX is doing out there with their nice clean cockpit and uh, um, uh, reverse lighting, you know, much like you have over your shoulder there, Brad, uh, you, you've got some style there as well. Uh, but it, it, it's very functional and it's very reliable. Can you talk to us? We know you've been following this SpaceX progress probably a lot closer than most. Can you talk to us about what SpaceX has had to overcome 
to get to be the first commercial operator to take astronauts back? And, and what are some of the challenges that they may still face as somebody who's not as well seasoned? Yeah, well, they're still going to have to face some challenges there um, simply because you got to be the have the first flight sometime. Uh, and this is, it's kind of a first flight and it kind of isn't, it's on a well-proven rocket. The Falcon 9 has a, a, a pretty good safety record. Uh, we've really only lost a couple of them, but what they really have going for them is iterations. They've flown these things over and over and over. So they had an opportunity to perfect it. Uh, does that mean that it's perfect? Certainly not, but it is uh, sufficient to the point where not only SpaceX is comfortable with it, uh, but if you listen to the NASA administrator and uh, the folks that are in, involved in these kind of decisions, particularly during flight readiness reviews that have been going on for the last couple of weeks, they're confident. They have enough confidence to put those two astronauts on top of them. So what they have ahead of them is they'll learn something on this flight. Uh, hopefully it'll go off without a hitch on, uh, on Saturday. Hopefully the weather will cooperate. But they're going to learn some things. There's going to be something that didn't go quite right. There'll be something that can be approved upon. Uh, when you listen to the, the call during the launch, one of the, the last people you hear from is a flight test director. And that may seem a little odd that, you know, we've got two people on top of this rocket and we're about to, to send it off into orbit and we're still testing. But this is absolutely a test. Uh, the name of this mission is Demo 2. It's a follow-on Demo 1. Demo 1 was pretty much what you're going to see on Saturday. Uh, but without the astronauts. Every one of these things is a test and it's a, a way to gather more data and to improve on things. Um, the, uh, the setback that uh, SpaceX had, um, I don't even remember how long ago, it was sometime last year or maybe even the year before that, where they lost one of the Crew Dragon capsules on the pad because of some of the hypergolic fuels that, um, uh, that are, are used on orbit. They're, they're uh, fuels that basically... Uh, if you put part A and point part B together, you create an explosion. You point that explosion in the right direction, you got thrust. Um, there was, I believe it was a leak that uh, they basically lost that capsule. That capsule was all but pulverized. So that was a bit of a setback to them because they, they didn't get as much data as they would have hoped from something like that. You learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. So they're, this is some of the most instrumented uh, spacecraft ever. They're gathering tons and tons of data from it. So once we do get this launch off, they're going to be gathering lots of information and improving things. So Tony, what's the relationship between NASA and SpaceX? Who, who's kind of responsible for what? NASA is the customer. Uh, they put out the requirements and SpaceX is the contractor fulfilling those requirements. It's kind of a similar relationship as the DOD would have with any of their contractors, if you're familiar with that world at all. Uh, that being said, though, there's a fair amount of oversight uh, that NASA still has in this, uh, particularly because of the uh, human spaceflight aspect here. There are people on board this thing. There are former astronauts that are involved in all of those reviews. Uh, and somebody asked during one of the press conferences this week, uh, who in NASA, if anybody, can raise their hand and, and say no? Uh, something's not right, something's not safe. And the answer that was given by the administrator was anybody, anybody involved in the review panels. And SpaceX reiterated that you know, they have uh, a culture that they're trying to promote there where anybody that's involved in building something uh, 
can and should raise concerns as well. Uh, how much that actually happens, that remains to be seen. Um, I don't know of any specific reports of it, uh, but that's at least the story that they're telling. Tony, in a moment, we're going to listen to some of that audio communication today as they came to the realization that the weather was going to be a no-go. Set this up for us. Who's doing the talking here? Is it NASA or is it SpaceX? Um, the, the, if it's the clip I think you're talking about, you're actually hearing a, an Air Force officer. So there is a, uh, a, a wing of a part of the 45th Space Wing uh, down at the uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station that is responsible for uh, forecasting weather all along the, the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station where there's additional launch pads. SpaceX is using one of the launch pads there in addition to uh, the one that was in use today, uh, the historic 39A launch pad. That's actually on the Kennedy Space Center side of things. They're responsible for forecasting weather involved in launches. They also provide weather forecast uh, for the station itself whenever they're moving around equipment and want to know about things like winds and, and, and rain and that sort of thing. The person you were hearing there was called the launch weather officer. And they are on equal footing with anybody else that is giving the go, no go call uh, during that final pull before they decide to actually light it or, or, or scrub and wait until the, the next opportunity. Uh, but they are someone who is speaking for a larger team of, of experts. And many of those experts are very focused on looking at, at things like lightning. And that's kind of how things shook out today. There was a lightning concern that we can get into. Yeah, let's listen to the audio here, and then we'll talk about that exact lightning concern. Um, unless you can give us another uh, 10 minutes, I don't think we're going to get there uh, with any of the rules today. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. I mean, <laughs> another 10 minutes past T0. Oh, 1645 local, I think we'll probably be clear on all the rules, but uh, not quite, not quite going to make it for this. Okay. We're going to check back in with you in about two minutes, and then I'll call it up at about uh, 17 minutes. Okay. Yeah, we got, we, there's, some of them are starting to count down, but we still have one above 2,000. So if that gets below... Uh, so... Tony was talking there a little bit as we came back about some of the liquid oxygen. You can explain that to us as well, too. But, Tony, what we were hearing there was about 20 minutes left in countdown, and they were they were so close, we think, to getting the, the weather rules all in agreement, and it just didn't come together. Yeah, it just didn't line up quite right. They were keeping an eye on some cells out towards Orlando and very excitedly noting that, noticing that the cells were starting to break up. Uh, I was watching them, you know, live there as well. Uh, there's a, a rule that says uh, several of the rules mention 10 nautical miles, which if you've ever been down in that area, runs out not quite to uh, Titusville and I-95. Uh, so you, you're watching it, any of that weather between the Space Coast and Orlando to see if those cells are going to continue moving forward, going to continue uh, building intensity, or are going to break up. And the, the positives were that it looked like they were breaking up and they certainly were, uh, but that's not the only consideration that they're making there. Uh, what they were mentioning was uh, field mill generators, and they dot all around, uh, not just Air Force property and NASA property. Uh, as you're driving out along the B-line heading back towards Orlando, you might notice some very tall towers out in what looked like swamps or farmer's field or something like that. Uh, these are more weather towers that exist further out towards um, Orlando, because you know, as you can see, all the weather moves from the east 
I'm sorry, from the west to the east. So they're monitoring that as, goes, as that goes along. These field mills, uh, they're about the size of a large coffee can, and they have a spinning disc inside of them. And what they're doing is measuring the electric potential of the atmosphere, and, and they're measured in volts per meter. Uh, so there's uh, everything has some level, uh, some acceptable level, and it's a, about a thousand to fifteen hundred volts per meter. And there's that, that, and you can see all those circles with the um, uh, with the, the the plus sign through them. Those are all field mills. I don't know which ones particularly were were violating, but there was enough of them violating where they were running up over two thousand volts per meter. I heard on the weather loop uh, that yeah, that just that, that wasn't sufficient. Uh, to to clear in time, they did see that voltage potential going down, and they did say about you know like they said about ten minutes after launch, conditions were right where they could have launched. Uh, so it's worth pointing out here too that this was an instantaneous launch. If that was a shuttle sitting on the pad uh, and it had sufficient fuel, we might have been able to launch today because that uh, the shuttle had a, a wide enough window. It carried extra fuel. Uh, it had some additional steering capability that was not designed into the Falcon 9. The Falcon 9 was designed more for efficiency. We know that we can come back the next day and try to launch again. But the shuttle was designed in such a way that we could launch as far as, you know, up to 10 minutes after the uh, the, the planned launch time and still steer back into that plane. Uh, but the, the Falcon 9, you launch the second that you planned on launching or you don't launch. It's it's not a matter of throttling up and you know catching back up to to where you'd planned on being. Once you're in the wrong orbital plane, you never catch up with station. Uh, so that's why it was set up that way. So we we've read through your tweet from earlier today, and um, it was kind of interesting seeing the different types of criteria needed to launch or to stop a launch. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of speak to more of some of these? Um, these these different conditions that can get in the way of a launch occurring, or, uh, yeah, or what it takes. If you don't mind, to... bring that graphic up, and and you guys are the the weather weenies here, so feel free to jump in on on anything you see here that that catches your eye. Uh, there's basically um, we'll call it three things that they're they're looking at. Precipitation is one of them. Uh, we don't want to launch through precipitation. That's that's just a no go. Um, it, 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 the other thing is clouds, and the clouds kind of go two ways. There's a thick cloud rule that's in place. Um, we have launched other missions through clouds, uh, uncrewed missions, and you see a, a really brightening of the cloud as the as the plume goes through it. But for a, a crewed mission where we want to keep eyes on the vehicle, particularly during a test like this, where uh, the, the high-definition video, they're basically shooting through telescopes that are on these, they, they look like old uh, World War II guns. Uh, that can elevate and follow the, the the track of the vehicle as it goes up. We want to keep eyes on that. So that thick cloud rule is another one. But the rest of the cloud rules, when you really look at them in depth, they are all about lightning, um, anvil clouds. Once a, a, a cumulus cloud has matured and a storm has matured to the point where you start seeing those overshooting tops as it's touching the bottom of the stratosphere, that's the kind of thing that it really worries uh, a launch weather officer uh, because it's got the potential to generate a lot of, uh, of lightning. Lightning's very bad for rockets. I mentioned that earlier, how uh, Apollo 12 was struck by, by lightning. Um, uh, smoke uh, in the area can uh, trigger lightning. 
Uh, the rockets themselves can trigger lightning. That plume that is coming off the, the rocket can act as a, a bit of a grounding rod. And the, the lightning is drawn to the vehicle itself because it's trying to find that path to the ground. And the plume itself can create a path to the ground. So any potential for lightning in the area we want to avoid, a good percentage of those uh, launch weather criteria that you see there is about avoiding lightning. Yeah, Tony, I was going to say I, I, the lightning is concerned, but I can see two or three other ones, especially the, the, the convective debris one and the, the within 10 miles of an anvil. They were all those were all met as well. So uh, it wasn't in the thing. It wasn't just one storm. They had storms exiting and also storms coming in. They were kind of surrounded. It was just a really a bad situation. As soon as I was looking at the radar and saw the lightning, I was like, this did not look good. <laughs> yeah, the times when I'm down there, I definitely have radar uh, on my phone out watching it. And you can watch the storms boil up, you know, little tiny cells uh, boil up halfway between Orlando and the Space Coast. And it's that convective action as the sea breezes come on that, uh, that really can create some of that. Didn't see a whole ton of that this afternoon, really did this morning. Saw those boil up, move across, dissipate. We're mostly seeing you know, more organized storms move across, or cells I should say, move across central Florida. Hey, Tony, I have a question. What, what was the precise like flight path? Was it to the northeast, southeast? What, what direction was it gonna go? Uh, all these, um, these flights are gonna go to the northeast. And okay. they're following the same inclination that the International Space Station has. So when you're, uh, you're looking at an orbit, everything's relative to the equator. And you measure that angle between the equator and you know, wherever your flight path is. And it's, uh, I have the exact number, it's 50 some degrees. So it kind of runs up the, the East Coast almost parallel to it. So anybody out in eastern North Carolina, the next time we have a good launch, especially one at night, it's easier to see these at night because you got that plume to look for. Uh, but we should be able to see them uh, definitely out from uh, the easternmost part of North Carolina. But I think you've actually seen them a time or two in Charlotte. Yeah, we got lucky with that sunrise launch uh, because the sun was coming up and it illuminated the plume on the horizon and it was yeah. spectacular. It freaked people out, but uh, as soon as I saw it, I knew right away. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. It was just the perfect setup of lighting and angle and everything. Brad, Venus freaks people out, so. <laughs> well, Tony, I have a question. Um, we're, we're talking about the weather and it kind of scrubbed this launch, so. What happens now? I mean, what, what do you think the mindset of these, these astronauts are? I mean, now you get pumped up for this and now it's kind of wait, wait a few more days. I think this is a bit of muscle memory for them. Um, it, it is not built up in their mind, maybe to the point where uh, we think it might be because they've done this so many times. There's a comment made on the broadcast today. Well, we got another good dry run. In, that mind, in their minds, that's probably what this was, a more organized dry run with more cameras and more attention. Uh, they saw this as a positive thing. Uh, this was another chance to check out the suits. This was another chance to check out, make sure those Teslas would make it to the, the launch pad without any problems there. I didn't see any superchargers on the launch pad, so I guess those things were fully charged before they popped the, uh, the astronauts in there. It was another chance to see their families. You know, They've been in quarantine for a good amount of time uh, that's normal. Uh, we always quarantine our astronauts before they go, something we learned back in the Apollo days. So they've done this so many times in simulations and in dry runs and things like that, uh, that this is kind of business as usual. This is their office. 
I'm sure they wanted to fly today and they would have rather uh, gone today than have to wait a couple more days. But it's another chance to, uh, to do a little more study. It's another chance to work through some of these things in their heads. So in the end, it's, it's a positive thing. Tony, actually playing on the screen right now is some emotional video of them saying goodbye to their family. And it's most notable in these coronavirus times that they are six feet apart and social distancing. But I think you just hit on upon it too in that space is a very sterile environment and there typically are some separation and some quarantine. Can, can you talk at all about, did, did coronavirus amplify that? Not really. Um, the main thing that the coronavirus the main impact that it had on this launch was in the support personnel. Uh, the, the folks that are, are working directly with the astronauts there, and this is the operations checkout building. It's existed since the, the, the I believe the Gemini days or, or, or definitely during the Apollo days. This is where there are some small apartments the astronauts stay in. Uh, there's some um, dining facilities. There's of course a kitchen there and there's folks that support that. So there's fewer people involved with that. And the people involved with that were in their own quarantine as well. But this, um, uh, the, the distancing you saw there, uh, there used to be a, uh, when the, the astronauts would arrive from Houston into the Kennedy Space Center, uh, near that landing strip where the, the, their aircraft would come in, there was this ditch, drainage ditch, that the families would be on one side and the astronauts would be on the other. And that was where they said their goodbyes. So it's very common for the, the families to be uh, separated from the astronauts just for their safety. Uh, one thing that, that's worth noting in that, that great video where you saw the, the, the two boys, um, the, the similarities with these two astronauts are, are kind of fun. They both have two boys about the same age. Um, both the astronauts are about the same age. They joined NASA. They were uh, accepted into the, the astronaut class of 2000. So there's a similarity there. They're both test pilots. Um, one was in the Air Force, one was in the Marine Corps. They both married astronauts as well. And both of their wives have PhDs. One's an oceanographer and the other is a, um, is a mechanical engineer. Uh, but they're, they're kind of similar in that regard. So it's really cool that they got to see their families here. And the one thing I really like about the Tesla is once those doors are shut and those guys are sealed in, uh, the boys got to go up and you know wave goodbye to their uh, their fathers a little bit closer. You didn't get that in the uh, the Astro van. They just hopped on board and headed out there. Kind of brings us right back around to that whole stylistic difference we're seeing now with SpaceX in 2020. Did we think Elon Musk was going to put them on a um, uh, on a motorhome and send them out there? No, no he he's going to send them out there like this. I did like now. the addition of the worm logo too, the old I... uh, worm logo type. I was going to ask you that. That was going to be my end question. But I'll, uh, is is that your preference over what I learned today is otherwise called the meatball? The meatball, NASA has three logos. The meatball is what you see on the door there. And each one of those little items on there, um, the, the red swoosh represents aeronautics. You see some some stars back there. Uh, obviously, that's uh, uh, representing the space aspect of, of NASA. NASA's covering both aeronautics and, and space exploration. Um, but the the NASA logo, um, the, the the stylized uh, logo type, the worm logo, we call it. Uh, I, I remember that from when I was growing up. So it's kind of nice to see it back. I don't have a, a preference personally. Uh, I think it's great to see them both. Tony, is there anything maybe we didn't ask you about that was on your mind today that you hmm. think would be important to include in tonight's conversation? 
Uh, something to look for uh, in the future. Well, obviously, we will keep an eye on the weather on, on Saturday and Sunday. The next opportunities, launch opportunities, Saturday at 3.22 p.m. Uh, NASA's TV is going to start about 12.15 with coverage. Uh, so there'll be plenty of things to see there. Uh, there's a backup opportunity on Sunday at 3 o'clock. So hopefully we'll be able to get this thing off this weekend. But once that's finished... Uh, the next set of astronauts that go up on this Crew Dragon, I believe they're going to use all four seats. So we'll we'll see this really starting to uh, to, to meet the the demands that it was set out there for. And keep in mind that this isn't the only commercial human spaceflight effort that is out there that NASA is partnering with uh, a commercial entity. Uh, next, we're going to see Boeing, and we don't have dates on when that's going to be, but Boeing has a Starliner, is what they call their capsule, uh, and it's going to be on top of an Atlas rocket, which is put out by United Launch Alliance. Uh, SpaceX builds both their capsule and their um, and their uh, um, their vehicle, and the launch vehicle, the, the Falcon 9, uh, but there's an additional partnership with United Launch Alliance, which NASA has a long, long history with. Uh, just about every uncrewed mission, all the robotic missions uh, through the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that are out there uh, studying the sun, studying Mars. Uh, we're going to have a, a launch of uh, the Curiosity Rover's twin, Perseverance, here in July. That's going to be on a United Launch Alliance rocket as well. That's a very well-proven rocket, too. It's actually the rocket I've seen launch the most. The times I've gone down there, mostly to see uncrewed launches. So keep an eye out for that as well. Is the plan here to get some commercialized versions of the International Space Station up there orbiting? That's one of the things that's being discussed, and it's certainly not going to be the last station up there. It is the most expensive, most complicated things humans have ever built. So I don't think SpaceX is going to be putting up their own version of this anytime soon. Uh, are there commercial benefits to having... Uh, an ability to do science and do manufacturing and, and, and low Earth orbit and uh, taking advantage of the microgravity. Absolutely. We're, we're doing things like we're even 3D printing uh, human organs uh, on station, something that you just can't do in uh, the normal gravitational environment of Earth. You have to be up there in, in microgravity to do it. So there's there's applications. That's something that's going to happen. Is it going to happen in, in you know short order? Probably not. Uh, but there's definitely applications in space, and that's the direction things are going. Tony, we appreciate your time. Our fingers are crossed that we can get this off the ground this weekend and return United States astronauts to the space station from U.S. soil. Uh, hopefully the weather cooperates. And uh, I think you've got some TV obligations coming up there in the Raleigh mm -hmm. area. And so we'll let folks in that area know they can catch you here in a little bit on TV. And we appreciate you squeezing us into your very busy day. Does anybody want to uh, go on record and, and make uh, weather predictions for Saturday? Or are we gonna we gonna launch on Saturday? Uh, it's Florida, like you said, Tony. <laughs> Someone asked me, "What's it look like?" Hey, if you especially that time of day, like mid afternoon <laughs> in Florida, basically at the end of May, early June, it, it's it's a 40 percent chance you can pretty much you know write it down. I think it'll be a lot like today. I think, you know, they just got to get lucky that they'll be in between storms right at that time. And the weather's very different in Florida than it is here in, in the Carolinas in that stuff will spin up and it'll move through. Florida's not a very wide state. 
So it can move through in just, you know, two hours time uh, from coast to coast and it'll be a, a bright, sunny day. Yeah, so. it's the same reason I, I always cringe when people have trips to Florida and they look at their app and go, oh, looks like it's going to rain every day. And I'm it like, will. that's yes, every single will. day. Rain all day. <laughs> and like you said, Tony, it'll pop up. Yeah, it'll pop up and be gone. You just got a 30 minute shower. Our challenge again with these instantaneous launches is uh, the weather's got to be right at that time. So what I, I tell folks, there's going to be another uh, launch weather forecast that comes out here. The 45th Weather Squadron we will put another one out probably on Friday. We'll definitely see one on Saturday. And when you see that go, no go percentage, follow me at RTP Hokie on Twitter. I always tweet these things out because uh, they're, they're a great source of information about what to look for. Don't get too wound up if the, uh, the no go percentage, you know, is too high. I've seen things be canceled for weather again, because of what you described with Florida weather uh, in the high nineties for go. And I've seen things be canceled for exactly the, the or be uh, have the ability to launch with absolutely horrid looking conditions a day before or even the morning before. There is truly a 50-50 chance that we will launch on any given day and it's either we go or we don't and it's based on what the conditions are right then and there. Tony mentioned during our uh, broadcast tonight, the Air Force 45th Weather Squadron, who was watching the weather very carefully down there and providing not only real-time conditions, but forecasts for this and many other launches. We had the opportunity to have them on this show on January of 2018. There's a whole episode where we talked to them about all sorts of things, but we uh, pulled the soundbite uh, about lightning, and Tony showed it earlier, all those different lightning detectors. Let's just roll a little bit of that clip so we can hear straight from uh, some members of the 45th, at least at the time here when this was recorded about how they go about tracking some of those weather conditions and with the lightning uh tell us about the threats that lightning would pose to a vehicle being struck on the pad and then uh and this may be something more for the the active duty members but tell us about the the new lightning defense systems that are on the pads now so one of the major threats again for uh the range is lightning uh and the reason why this is a threat is uh, the it poses a risk to the electrical system of the rocket, uh, and it can actually cause a threat to the um, steering system. And so we want to make sure. And every time there's a lightning strike close to a pad where there's a rocket exposed, we they they have to kind of take it back into the hangar and run several tests to make sure that none of the circuits of the rocket got. Uh, uh, closed circuit or would there was any damage to, to the steering system because again and we have a, a sensor of 10 uh, or a network of 10 sensors uh, very very strategically uh, positioned and they are they are using the radio frequencies to be able to localize the different uh, lining um, step leaders and so they each step leader is sending out a signal and via triangulation we are uh, locating that step leader so with those sensors we can start pinpointing cloud to cloud or cloud to ground uh, lightning strikes uh, right now I, the resolution that we have is 50 meters so we can localize or we can pinpoint a, a lightning strike within 50 meters of the actual uh, location where it struck 
some very interesting stuff. You can find that show in the uh, Carolina Weather Group archive. We also have it uh, looping this week if you're checking out our new nonstop Carolina Weather Net channel on, on YouTube and on uh, Twitch. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. We want to uh, switch gears now and talk a little bit about the surprise that was Tropical Storm Bertha today. Uh, we'll bring in Brad in a minute to talk about some of the lingering uh, flooding concerns. It looks like we still have one of the two flash flood warnings right now at this uh, 9 o'clock hour here in Charlotte. But I know Jared Smith in Charleston is on a tight time crunch as well, too. And Jared, you guys woke up in the, like, bullseye of this thing this morning. Yeah, yeah. it started as a, uh, you know, we knew that something was going to happen. So I, I think that's the most important thing to note is that the surprise was the naming. It wasn't necessarily the fact that we were going to have heavy rain, that we were going to have gusty winds, that we were going to have a marginal tornado threat. Uh, all of those things, we, we went into this knowing that that was a possibility. And we went into this knowing that there was a 20 to 30 percent chance that this thing could turn tropical. The Gulf Stream, uh, you know, uh, much like you two, uh, moves in mysterious ways. And, 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 so, and so it was again this time. Um, it just absolutely took off like a rocket. It started as a it started as a very strong velocity couple. The Weather Service in Charleston had actually put out a special marine warning that ended up acting like a cone of uncertainty, um, because during the time of that special marine warning, the National Hurricane Center bumped the probability up to seventy percent, and then by eight thirty, they had classified it as Tropical Storm Bertha, just thirty miles offshore. Um, and so, and, and and so we're like, oh, okay. Um, so this is happening, and, uh, and and yeah, it came ashore. You know, it was uh, you know had some pretty good wind gusts. The buoy at um, the Edisto buoy went to uh, you know fifty nine miles an hour, which was pretty good. You know, 30, 40 mile an hour wind gusts, some scattered power outages, especially as you got into Myrtle Beach, um, wasn't that bad. We've had way worse. We had we had tornadoes last week, right? And and we had even heavier rain. Of course, we had flooding downtown as we often do, but we had that even worse last week. So. You know, again, we kind of knew that there was going to be something here. The fact that it got named when it did, um, you know, it was kind of like, OK, uh, but you could see it. I mean, you could see it coming together on the radar. And and and, and that guy, you know, it, it started developing a little lies like, wait a second, wait a second. You start, you start to see that is expanding out from being this uh, water spout producing supercell to something a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit broader. So. You know, it was a, caught us by surprise a little bit as far as the, that development. But again, we, we knew that this was going to kind of be how it went. You know, it was, there was you know, nothing really surprising about that part. Um, you know, no major, you know, no major problems here in Charleston aside from the flooding that we're used to. Um, but, you know, now it's just going to go up the gut and send a, a bunch of rain up there. We did set a rainfall record at the airport today, um, 2.08 inches, a new record. Um, uh, breaks a record set in 1977 of two inches straight on the dot. So, you know, we got, you know, we got another uh, pretty good deluge of rain after, you know, the bone dry start to May. So yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting day. I'm still getting comments tonight on Twitter and Facebook saying is like, Oh wait, there was a tropical storm. What? And it's like, it's like, I was too busy. Dis the, my favorite one right here is I was too busy disinfecting everything to know that there was a tropical storm. So uh, give you a general idea of uh, what kind of event Bertha was here. Really wasn't that big, but uh, did, did you, you say, know? Did you say that we're up the gut? Because that's what I took away from what you just said. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, it's running, you know, it's, it, 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 you, you do a little football analogy here, you know, we're just going right up, you know, it's, it's doing the old Hugo. Well, God, the, the track parallels to yeah. Hugo were kind of fascinating actually. Love and uh, yeah, fortunately there were no parallels as far as intensity. So that was good. Um, so, you know, that, that, that got some locals, you know, buzzing a little bit as far as like, Ooh, that, that, that looks, uh, that looks familiar. We've seen that before. Um, but yeah, at landfall, her, the Hurricane Center said, said it had 50 mile an hour winds. Now, mm-hmm. Shea Gibson, our panelist, uh, you know, he he ha, you know helps maintain a pretty dense mezzanine of weather stations here, and uh, really along the southeast, and with weather flow, and um, they didn't see anything like that. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what the post mortem looks like on this. Um, I'm going to be very interested to see how this goes. I know that. You know, and I'll tell you what, it's like the local weather service had everything, had everything, you know, nailed down and, and ready to go. And to and so to switch to tropical mode just on the fly like that, usually they have some time to prepare for that. Uh, today, they had to just flip flop into tropical operations, um, you know, and, and, and kudos to the weather service in Charleston for making that just so seamless. They did such a wonderful job. Uh, keeping everything flowing, keeping everybody informed. So uh, not an easy day uh, uh, for anybody in weather, to put it mildly. Well, Brad, your colleague to the south, Chief Meteorologist Efron Afonte at WLTX, had a graphic. I was just looking to see if he tweeted it. I saw it on the air earlier that kind of just did a timeline. And I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. But it was essentially 530 advisory, 20% chance, 730 advisory, 70% chance. And then somewhere at like 930, it was like landfall. Um, <laughs> Jared mentioned the tornado. I think, I think when the 70, when that 70% came out, it was probably already a tropical system. <laughs> probably. Uh, they needed to get a little bit closer for all those sensors, I guess. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, it brings up a good point. I think Jared was exactly spot on. It's funny how this just getting a name makes a big deal of it, but literally the forecast and impact, nothing changed. <laughs> It's like I joked all day. It's like, hey, our rain now has a name. It's like pretty much, you know, we were forecasting the flood threat. Um, The timing was exact. I was calling it a tropical low for the last three days. I really wasn't referring to it as uh, a tropical wave because it looked like it was going to have some spin to it. Uh, All those short range guidance had some rotation. Um, But it is interesting that it gets a name and it's, you know, uh, the B storm, it's its weird. It's the third time in the last 10 years we've had the B storm before June 1st. So uh, that is rare, but it's happened a lot more frequently in the last 10 years. Um, and I, I looked it up today, and it, I'm pretty sure, I think it tied for the third or fourth earliest B storm on record, at least formation-wise. But it's probably going to set a record for the shortest duration uh, tropical system because uh, I think it was last year we had uh, the A storm. Was it Andrea? Only like three quarters of a day did it maintain tropical um, characteristics. So this will be interesting to see what kind of uh, longevity stats it's going to come up with. But the thing to remember about these is I think as a communicator with the public is the name really isn't important. It's the impacts. And I think if people focus on the impacts more, the name is not that big of a deal. Um, For instance, everybody was freaking out about this today, but it honestly did less damage and issues to us than a cutoff no name low last week, (laughs) which plagued us with flooding for four days, tornadoes, straight line winds. So 
it, it's a really good wake up call about how we communicate weather impacts. I know for insurance purposes, especially on the coast, that the naming is a big deal for deductibles and stuff. But for in the grand scheme of things, the, the overall impacts did not change at all just because we gave it a name today. Can you talk about how last week's weather, and I don't mean to make any assumptions in the question, set us up for the flooding risk today, how it all kind of came together? Oh, I've been fascinated by watching the flooding. We had a lot of flooding in Charlotte, a lot of creeks. And I saw a couple creeks come up with only an inch and a quarter of rain. That, that's almost, I never seen that happen. The problem was everything saturated. That inch and a quarter of rain went right into the creek. <laughs> Nothing soaked in. So we had several creeks flood almost instantaneously because of the four to six inches of rain we had last week. There's just, it's like a, it's like a wet sponge trying to clean a, a wet table with a wet sponge. You just spread the water around. You're not really soaking anything up. And so today we actually set a rainfall record as well. I'm glad Jared brought that up because I had to check. In Charlotte, we did set a rainfall record for today as well. 1.55 broke, or 1.64 broke the old record of 1.55 in 1981. So um, I think that's the ninth or tenth one inch or more rainfall in a day this this year. I think that's a record for this early in the year as well. So yeah, last uh, last week's rain really set the table for the flooding issues today. And we're going to see a lot of the creeks and streams continue to rise in the next 24 hours because this is all running off back into the Catawba, the Rocky River. It's flowing into the PD. I bet you're going to see some pretty uh, substantial and surprising crest on some of these rivers because that people don't expect the little bit of rain we got today to cause a quick jump in water levels. And just watch any of the storms that pop up the next two days. They'll be more scattered, but any one of those is probably going to produce flash flooding pretty quickly. I've been doing a lot of talking this episode. I want to just pause for a moment and see if anyone else wants to hop in so I don't steal the all the questions. I, I would, I'll just say normally with these tropical systems, uh, the foothills really, you know, we really wring out the moisture, but it, it's not been too bad up this way. It's more like Brad said, along the 77 corridor onto the east where most of the flooding has been. Last week, uh, it was a lot of rain as well, but we didn't see as much flooding because of the breaks and things that happen, we didn't see a lot of flash flooding. So we've got lucky, but like Brad said, I, I think it's time to dry out for a few a few days. It's uh, it's been the, awful. The good news too is is this thing was moving. If it if it was six miles per hour slower, I think we would have major issues in the Charlotte area because uh, we started seeing the water come up real quickly right at the tail end of that last rain band. If it stuck over us a little bit longer, I think we would have a lot of water rescues and a lot of issues in Charlotte. So. Um, I think we got pretty lucky with that forward speed, almost moving um, 25, 30 miles an hour by the time it got up our way. I think what's interesting is one of the comments I've been getting a lot today, and I, I think this is always one that's kind of uh, the public sees these early storms and they go, uh oh, looks like a bad season. And and then honestly, it doesn't really mean a whole lot for the season. I mean, we might go two months now without seeing another tropical system, though. I don't know. Next week in the golf looks kind of interesting. Um, but it, it just, I think it's one of those things, you know, these homegrown systems early in the season, stalled fronts, MCVs that are over water. This is kind of par for the course. This isn't really all that crazy. The only thing that would have me concerned, and Jared brought this up, is how warm the water is in the Gulf Stream and in the Gulf of Mexico. I think the sea surface temperatures are something I'll be watching a lot uh, this hurricane season. But you know, if we have a busy season and they're all fish storms, nobody's going to say anything about these later on in the season. 
<laughs> and we'll remind folks that last week the Hurricane Center came out with their outlook for the season, and it was kind of at or above normal range. Yeah, it looked a lot like last season. If Honestly, when you look at the numbers, it's almost like a, a regurgitation of last season's exact numbers we got. So, um, yeah, those above the seasonal forecasts get a lot of publicity and there is some skill in them. I, some of the forecasters do an amazing job. But the thing I always caution the public is the number of storms does not mean anything to you. One storm hitting you is a bad season. So I always bring up 1992 Hurricane Andrew, first storm of the season one of the worst storms in U.S. history, the A-storm. I think we ended up with seven total named storms the entire season. But everyone will remember that season for Andrew. They won't. <laughs> no one's going to go, 1992 was a great hurricane season. We only had seven storms, you know. Um, so the number isn't always important. It's the two or three that end up affecting you that really defines the season, in my opinion. Brad, let me ask you a non-hurricane question, a lifestyle question for Charlotte and I think beyond. It's been raining so much lately. I haven't been able to get out and cut my lawn, tend to the garden. Oh, when is that? When am I going to be able to do that? I think this weekend, this cold front. You know, I think this. If, if we didn't have all this rain and all this other stuff going, on, we'd be talking a lot about this cold front in early June. I mean, it's going to Monday and Tuesday. We're going to be in the low to mid seventies in Charlotte with morning lows in the fifties. That's the first two days of June and dew points in the forties. That's like heaven. Um, so it, it is interesting to see that after this rainy pattern, we're going to get this great treat of weather to kick off the meteorological summer. So people will get the, uh, get the chance to mow their lawn and let their yard dry out. I've been pretty happy because my lawn looks amazing this year. Uh, <laughs> if we you had, do we say so yourself. Yeah, we got so warm so early. I was able to get the fescue like in, in, in shape and then getting rain. I haven't turned my irrigation on once. Um, it's, it's, it's been amazing. The problem is just getting out in the yard to work on it. It's just been so, so wet. And if you're trying to do a garden, uh, it's been, it's been tough. Your plants are getting drowned out. So this weekend things dry out next week looks a lot better. And we get back to typical, uh, summer weather. It looks like by the end of next week, I think, you know, pools will start opening. And, uh, now that no, we're getting to phase two of the reopening as well. I think people kind of want it to warm up and dry out so they can enjoy some of those summer activities. Scotty, we had a big NASCAR race kick off this past weekend in Charlotte. They got in the Coca-Cola 600. It went to overtime after a long weather delay, but there's still some more races they're trying to get in, right? Can you give us a weather sports update? Can you see the bags in my, under my eyes? I mean, it's been a long couple of days. Uh, yeah, we had rain for the Coca-Cola 600, made it the longest race, uh, 607 miles. I think it was almost a six-hour race uh, with that uh, hour and about 15-minute rain delay. Tuesday and Wednesday, we got off without a hitch. Tonight, uh, you know, tonight we had rain ending around the 8 o'clock start time, but the problem was – it's going to take about two and a half, three hours to dry the track with all the humidity around. So that would be a start time of about 11, 1130. And uh, that's just not the best for, for folks who are wanting to watch on TV. So we're going to try again tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. out at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, weather looks good and unless we get one of those uh, pop-up thunderstorms around the area. So uh, I'll be watching for uh, some storms in the vicinity. Hopefully uh, they all stay away from the track and we can get – uh, this race in because they turn around in their shops on Friday and they head to Bristol, Tennessee on Sunday and Monday for uh, this very condensed um, every other day. It seems like racing right now for NASCAR to get called back up from uh, all the missed races. It's like the, the baseball schedule, but for NASCAR. 
It is. I mean, it, and I was uh, on a chat with the, the team out at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and they, they were all just dragging because it's long days. Teams come in early in the morning. They have to go through all the COVID um, screenings and just makes for a very long day out the track, and then you have to deal with the rain. So I know uh, they are ready for it to clear out and get the racing back underway. So, yeah, we'll, we'll try again tomorrow night. Scotty, I think I, I was cracking up, you know, we, you know, we do a lot with NASCAR and it's just so funny. We we're going to cram all these races in the Carolinas in a two week period and the two <laughs> weeks we have it. It's like it's, the wettest two weeks of the entire spring. It's funny. Uh, one of the folks we work with at the track, Brad, they said, maybe this is God telling us we shouldn't have started this early. <laughs> I mean, it, it all made sense to have all these races regionally, but it's like, what a horrible time. It's like, yeah. we've been just getting soaked and washed out. I did want to tell you one thing about Bertha guys. I was just looking something up real quickly. Cause I was thinking about it. Um, the accumulated cyclone energy for Bertha. <laughs> Look at this chart. Uh, the name storm day for Bertha was only half a day. I, I believe that is going to be a record for the wow. shortest duration name and 0.4 accumulated cyclone energy. So if you look at the chart here, it shows observed versus climatology, even though we've had two early season storms, it's barely above climatology. So um, I've always liked looking at this metric because if you're not familiar with this metric, it basically shows intensity of storm and duration of storm. It, it comes up with a calculation called accumulated cyclone or ACE. Um, and I think it's a really good metric for trying to see how active a hurricane season is. So even though we've had two storms, you can see it's kind of accumulated cyclone energy of almost nothing. I was just looking because I was I had lost track of it and I was like, is it still a depression? It is still a depression right now because I was like, I wonder how long it's going to actually hold on to this Bertha name. But I guess yeah, the, 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 one of the naming regimes for the Hurricane Center, it, once a, a storm is downgraded to a depression, it keeps the name even as a depression until it becomes a remnant low. So um, it will be Tropical Depression Bertha and probably till at 2 a.m. I bet the 2 a.m. advisory tonight it'll get dumped, if not earlier, maybe 11. I was I mean, it's, it's still in there. Let's see. Yeah. 2 a.m. Thursday. It's still a tropical cyclone as a depression. And then 2 p.m. Thursday, if we're just looking at the cone mile markers, it's post tropical depression. Bertha somewhere over Pennsylvania, just to keep us on our toes. So we'll see. Uh, Brad, thank you for your time. I know your day has been very busy. Your week's been very busy. Uh, one last plug for weather school. You got a couple more days of that left, right? Yeah, two more days of weather school. We will have, I, I believe if my numbers are correct without our, our glitches, I think I think exactly 60 episodes of Put weather a, school a DVD since box the beginning of March. That, yeah, that is, uh, that's pretty impressive that we've been able to do that every single day at one o'clock. We've done a weather segment uh, online live and on YouTube. So two more days of the school year. I will be happy. I love doing them, but I'll be honest with you, it's made some for some long days. Um, especially when you have to get up and start at 11 o'clock producing this thing and uh, get your day rolling and then try to teach two kids in your house uh, their homeschooling as well. So it's been it's been an interesting. I love it. But I love the fact that it's all online, James. That's the great thing about it is that archive is there now and people can go back and use these. They're evergreen. Um, they're going to be able to go back and that playlist is on the WCNC's uh, YouTube channel. And you can go watch them and use them for lessons in the fall, next spring, whenever. They're always going to be there. So that's the cool thing about it. Absolutely. Do want to acknowledge you guys have been working real hard on those. You've been doing some long days because you've still got television due until 1135 at night. But uh, yeah, WCNC.com slash weather school will take you over to that playlist and they'll live there forever. And so a lot of hard work. And now, we, now you've got this great archive uh, that folks can utilize at any point. 
Uh, we'll let folks know that, as always, you can check out the Carolina Weather Group podcast, the audio version of the podcast on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and a review. It certainly does help. You can always watch the show live when we do these roundtable discussions by joining into the conversation on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, Twitch. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we're experimenting with a new nonstop channel called the Carolina Weather Net on YouTube. So you may see episodes just like this one repeating at a future time in, in a wheel. We will be back on all of our streaming platforms uh, this weekend for the launch of SpaceX Demo 2. And uh, we leave you tonight with some sound from astronaut Christina Cook. She spent almost a year aboard that International Space Station starting in 2019. And she is a graduate of NC State. And she had this to say about the mission. Uh, and she spoke earlier today with NASA TV. Thank you, Marina. I now have the distinct pleasure of being joined by one of NASA's record-setting astronauts and a recent resident aboard the International Space Station, Christina Cook. Christina, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Dan. Christina, we're coming up on 20 years of continuous human presence on the space station, and you were one of those humans. What's it like to see a new milestone like this launch unfold after so much history already? So much history indeed. Um, it is really just such a testament to NASA. Not only are we pushing the boundaries of knowledge and discovery and exploration, but we're pushing the boundaries on how we accomplish that mission. We're bringing in commercial partners. We're fostering a space economy. So we're making sure that we're always pushing forward, always taking that next step. I think it's such a privilege to be part of an organization that recognizes if we're not actually making steps and in innovating every single time we do this, then we're not truly answering humanity's call to explore and to push those boundaries. Christina, I know Bob and Doug are veterans themselves, but what advice do you have for Bob and Doug, given your experience as a long-duration station crew member? Well, being able to live on board the International Space Station and work there is just such a privilege. You know, you're a steward of this amazing laboratory that's bringing so many benefits down to Earth and also learning how we can push farther into the universe. So it is quite an honor, and I think that's the main thing about how it feels to be up there for a long duration. You know, in terms of advice, um, Bob and Doug have been great mentors for me. They've given me advice for so many years. It's strange to be the one who could be in a position to offer them anything. But I would say that as, you know, shuttle flyers, they used to participate in missions that were really, really intense, go, go, go all the time. Long duration space flight is more of a marathon than a sprint. So I would tell them to take that moment, enjoy it, and you know, really welcome the opportunity to have part of your mission be taking it all in and sharing that with the people that got you there. Thanks again, Christina. Always a pleasure to hear from you and fantastic words. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, my pleasure.